Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. I'm Rachel. And I'm Emma. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss Gavin Williamson's resignation. And you ask us, what will a second period of austerity bring? Since we last recorded, Gavin Williamson, who was the sort of whip of Rishi Sunak's leadership campaign and elevated to minister without portfolio in his cabinet, he's resigned from cabinet over bullying allegations. Labour's saying this brings Rishi Sunak's judgment into question because he was aware of a complaint against him when he appointed him. And also, let's not forget Williamson's past. He was sacked by Theresa May after she accused him of leaking from a national security briefing when he was defence secretary. And he was fired in Boris Johnson's reshuffle last September as education secretary after messing up the exam result algorithm during the pandemic and various other failings. Is this another sign of Sunak's weakness, Freddie? Yeah, completely. I think that's the main takeaway from it is that Sunak was supposed to be this clean break from the divisiveness and the weakness of Truss and Johnson, but he's not been able to do that, in part because he inherited all of those divisions that already existed. And Gavin Williamson was there to try and manage those things, to try and ensure he could get bills through the House of Commons. And the fact that he had this bad history and he still had to bring him into the cabinet just speaks to the fact that Rishi Sunak was much weaker than many people thought. So it's a bit like a Suella Braverman situation. He felt like he had to have her in for different reasons, but still political expediency. Completely. Yeah. Braverman was there in part as a figurehead for the right of the party. He needed the support of her supporters in the leadership campaign. And that's part of the reason that she stayed on as, or was brought back in as Home Secretary, even though she leaked or shared those sensitive documents six days before joining Rishi Sunak's cabinet. Right. Okay. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think although it says something about Rishi Sunak's position, it also says something about the way Westminster works, doesn't it? Because there's been a lot of commentary about the kind of text that Gavin Williamson was sending, but also his whole approach to Westminster politics, which is very much of the kind of dark arts of the whips style, house of cards-ish. You know, that's the way that some MPs kind of like to characterise themselves. And while there's an acceptance to an extent of that kind of behaviour in Westminster, It looks very strange to the outside world. I think it's the same with that fracking vote where you had those claims about whips trying to force people into the lobbies. You know, it was sort of like, well, this is what it's always been like. This is how it works. But why? You know, I remember when I spoke to Andy Burnham at Labour conference, he actually said something about how the whip system should be 
should be abolished. And, you know, people were kind of laughing at his naivety, but actually it does look odd. And Emma, we've got you on your our business correspondent for this mm-hmm. podcast. And often when you listen in on focus groups or you speak to people who are sort of outside of politics, they wonder why it works in such a way where you could never get away with it in a normal company. And I'm sure you've spoken to business owners who have kind of been rolling their eyes at this kind of schoolyard style of politics. I mean, I'm the only non-political reporter here, right? Yeah. And I look at this stuff. You know, I don't routinely watch PMQs or anything like that. I look at this behaviour and I just think, Jesus Christ, like, what <laughs> is going on? It's like, it's like worse than school. I don't think I behave like that, at least during senior school. And it is a very weird to sit outside. Obviously, you know, I work for the New Statesman. I'm fairly politically informed, but... Even Elon Musk, if he behaves like that, physically pushing people into lobbies, mm-hmm. okay, is not beyond Elon Musk to keep a tarantula on his desk to intimidate people. <laughs> that seems like a very Elon Musk thing to do. And if he hears about Gavin Williamson doing it, I would be surprised if he wasn't tempted to copy it. But <laughs> am I defaming anyone there? I don't think I am. You know, yeah, you couldn't behave like this in a company. So much of what happens in politics you couldn't do. And if you look at the kind of mini budget fiasco, mm. I think last time I was on, I used a very laboured metaphor about share prices and trying to sell stuff. But, you know, you just can't behave like that in, in the real world. But Rachel, is it his behaviour that's meant that he's had to leave Cabinet? Or is it more, as he said in his resignation letter, that he was becoming a distraction, which is sort of classic resignation letter speak? I, th- I think sort of Gavin Williamson is like an exceptional case as in like the amount of times he's been offered a chance and failed. Mm-hmm. So so when you kind of look at his career history within sort of frontline politics in, in government, he was David Cameron's PPS. Then when Cameron resigned after the Brexit vote, he, he switched sides and picked Theresa May, became her campaign manager. At the time, he'd kind of, there were reports that he'd vowed to get revenge on Boris Johnson for the Brexit vote and David Cameron and what have you. Mm. Then when Theresa May won, obviously, he became chief chief whip. He he was kind of then promoted to defence secretary. Mark Sedwell, the head of the civil service, found that he was the one responsible for for leaking from the National Security Council. So she had no real choice but to to sack him. And then he he switched sides again and helped Boris Johnson to oust Theresa May as part of his leadership campaign. And then you have, he switched sides again to to Rishi Sunak. And in the meantime, in between those times, he he became education secretary during COVID and completely balls that up and was a total, total mess. I think it says a lot about Rishi Sunak's judgment that he then thought it was a good idea to put Gavin Williamson into his cabinet. As far as I can see, it, it's not just a, a fact that he ignored that there was a bullying claim against Gavin Williamson. He also just ignored this complete balls up of a political career that Gavin <laughs> Williamson has had. Hasn't stopped um, ministers in the past, I have to say. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's got, got away with quite as much as um as, as Gavin Williamson has. And I think I, I think it kind of says a lot that Rishi Sunak didn't think it was a, a good idea to actually remove him and he he allowed Gavin Williamson to to actually resign instead and then said that he he accepted his resignation with great sadness. It was either for Rishi Sunak to kind of show his authority and act or to just go go, go into the trenches and try to defend his position. Mm. So I just don't think from start to end Rishi Sunak's handled it very well, really. Yeah, and he was one of five former chief whips that Rishi Sunak promoted, which suggests he knew that the big issue for him, the big priority outside of the policy 
areas that <laughs> are very pressing was party management. And actually, this has exposed the, the, the divisions within the party still because it looked like more and more people were going to come out with evidence about the way Williamson had treated them unless he was axed. Yeah, completely. I mean, all those briefings in the newspapers, yeah. all those rumours, they came from somewhere and it speaks to the division in the party uh, and those who were anti-Williamson, but also by by that, by virtue of that, anti-Sunak. Um, mm. But I think, I don't know, we, you know, you mentioned this earlier, Nish, I'm not sure how much cut through this story will have. For much of the week, it's been a Westminster story, but the most important things are, as we've discussed, it demonstrating the disunity in the party and also the weakness of Rishi Sunak's position. And that matters in part because we've got the autumn statement next week, which is by far the single most important moment for Rishi Sunak. So far, that's when we're going to see which taxes he's going to raise, which spending he's going to cut. And if he doesn't have the unity within his party to get those measures through, then he's very vulnerable to MPs coming forward and saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. I mean, we already had Ian Duncan Smith, I think, this week saying that he didn't want to see the top rate of tax increase. So there's already divisions and debates within the party, and that's going to bleed through to next week. Yeah, because on every single decision that he has to make, there is now a faction of MPs who would oppose it. So putting benefits up in line with anything other than inflation. You know, we know that a number of former DWP secretaries, including Ian Duncan Smith, would advise against that. Yeah, and that's why party unity is so important because the system relies upon having this majority in the House of Commons to enable the government to get through legislation. I mean, that's one of the reasons we've not had much movement within the House in the past nine months or so because the Conservative Party has been so divided. Mm-hmm. And talking of attack dogs, um, back to that theme, Rachel, you had a really interesting story recently a few days ago, which I think all our listeners should go and read if they haven't already, that Labour's decided it has enough ideas people in its inner circle and it needs a few street fighters in head- headquarters. So Tell us a bit about what they're planning. When Rishi Sunak um, took office, after Liz Truss was ousted and before that Boris Johnson was ousted, Labour kind of, well, Kistama rather, came to the decision that this is a very, very divided party. The government could fall apart at any time because of everything that's passed in the last few months. So we'll put the party on an election foot in. And as as part of that, they're moving out of their current headquarters in Southside to a new building in Southwark. And I found out yesterday that they're actually temporarily based in Millbank. And they're getting a lot more donations because they're seen as, you know, because they've been ahead in, ahead in the polls for a significant amount of time now by an average of like 20 points ahead in the polls. So they're getting a lot more donations. That they've, they've asked uh, Lord Wahid Ali, who is a quite famous... Blairite Labour peer, you know, he's very close to Tony Blair. He was, in his, he was an advisor to his government and he's sort of very good friends with Angie Hunter. Mm-hmm. He's kind of leading all of their fundraising efforts and they are going to be taking on like more comms people, more what you would consider to be like attack dogs, you know, people to rifle through Conservative Party candidates' social media and to do a lot more of sort of the aggressive briefing against their opponents. So it's just all part of them being sort of very election ready and having a bit more cash in the coffers to 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 be as much interesting weird that they didn't already have that in place though considering the tories are quite hot on this stuff yeah the conservative party is very good at looking at 
Labour MPs and uh, politicians are making sure that any bad thing in their history is, is out in the open. And th- I think, for instance, the Conservative Research Department at CCHQ is very good at focusing on these things and ensuring ministers know what their opponents are up to and ensuring that the Labour Party has a really tricky time in the media. So it's very important that uh, parties do that because you need to frame the narrative and you need to ensure that any of any movement that your opponent makes is fact-checked or given scrutiny in the media. I'd kind of take issue with that slightly, considering a lot of people who briefed all of the Keir Starmer Beergate stories thought it was the best <laughs> the best thing they'd done in, <laughs> in generations, and it was itself a little bit flat on its face. But um, yeah, it did, it did manage to stay on the front of the mail for a few days. So that was from the Conservative Research Department then, those stories? It, they were all driven by con- Conservative Party figures, yeah, that, that were kind of pushing the story, briefing briefing journalists about it, but it, it didn't really go anywhere. But yeah, they're just the Labour Party hasn't had a lot of money for, for years now because they've, you know, not been winning elections and not been attracting donations because of that. So yeah, it might change, yeah. Do people expect Labour to be a bit nicer than the Tories on that kind of front? Um, like a bit, a bit less attacky. I don't know. Labour t- tends to do a lot of its a lot of its briefing. It's a bit less obvious than some of the Conservative Party briefings. So you'll see a lot of stories appear that you actually know have come from a Labour briefing, and you know make the front page of the Times, make the front page of the Sunday Times, or what have you. So it's you know yeah, it's all behind the scenes, I guess. So it's not so much about yeah, coming across as aggressive. A bit more behind the scenes. I don't know if they're nicer. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I'm not saying they are nicer. I'm just saying, do people expect them to be nicer? Well, for Keir Starmer. One of the most annoying things for him in his job is that everyone always says who's not sure about him sort of in the public is that he's he's only ever criticising. Like, why does he only ever have bad things to say about the Conservatives? Why doesn't he have any plans of his own? And actually, that's a really tricky thing because when you're leader of the opposition, uh, PMQs itself, you're not supposed to be putting forward your own agenda. You're supposed to be picking holes in the government so but that's sort of the main bit the clips that people see yeah. most often on the news yeah the government leads the news yeah. agenda therefore the main part that labor plays is the criticism that they go you know two-thirds down the piece and you'll see the labor quote saying oh, and the this government is wrong for doing this yeah. because the government are the government and therefore they're more important because they're making policies and they're impacting everyone's lives so labor yeah uh, they're forced to be reactive in that sense yeah all right let's move on to the next section hi it's anoush here This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Armand Iannucci. And I'm Anoush Shekelian. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power, alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukissi Deborah, and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask You Ask Us. And we have a question today from Michael. Thanks so much, Michael. As we enter a potential second period of austerity since 2010, to what extent has Osborne's austerity got us where we are now? For example, many people cited overwhelmed public services as a motivation for voting Brexit. So I think this is a really good question. And I've actually written pieces myself about the prospect of austerity 2.0 and the return of austerity. But actually, you know, perhaps those pieces were framed slightly wrongly because we're still with austerity 1.0 or whatever. The first time round post-crash in 2010, the effects of those cuts are probably being felt around the country more than ever in most demographic groups now. So I think probably the most obvious examples of, of this political moment would be public sector workers struggling to recruit and retain those public sector workers because they're paid so little. I mean, the public sector pay freeze was such a big part of austerity. And now you see their real wages are far lower than they should be. The Royal College of Nursing has just decided to go on strike for the first time. Annual wage growth is 5%, but for the public sector, it's less than 2%. So you can see why they're struggling to recruit in those jobs. So I'd say that's one of the big impacts. And then, of course, lack of beds and tight resources in our hospitals. You saw that over COVID very in very extreme form, but also you're seeing it now with ambulances queuing up outside hospitals. That's all because of the cuts to local government, which provides social care services. There's not enough social care, so people can't be discharged from hospitals. And that's something that Jeremy Hunt, who was health secretary during austerity, actually admitted to me himself. That is why those ambulances are queuing up in hospital car parks. And then I think in general, there is a feeling that the kind of public realm has been neglected and you're sort of losing those spaces that you perhaps remember from 10 years ago. So something that struck me was where I live, the free fireworks display that they'd have every bonfire night is off now. It sounds like a small thing and it's not something that you can really measure, but I do think it it just adds a feeling that, you know, your community sort of bit by bit, drip by drip is kind of being ignored. And I'd say that kind of sense of dislocation was part of some of the reasons that some parts of the country voted to leave the EU as well, which is something that Michael suggested in his question. But Emma, you were covering this. I'd like to know your thoughts. Yeah. Well, I have covered this this week and for a piece that's coming out on Friday to coincide with um, GDP figures, because the Bank of England has warned that we're about to go into a recession that's going to be the longest in a century. And on Friday, we will find out most likely that the economy has gone into its first quarter of many of contraction. So not recession, because recession is two quarters of contraction. But most economists think that it will have shrunk by 0.4%. I mean, if you compare that with other countries, the US in the third quarter grew 2.6%. The Eurozone grew 0.2%, so not loads. But other economies are still in growth, albeit quite anemic growth. And you can trace this stuff back to austerity, to the original 2010 austerity, because there was such a big drop in investment in this country. And investment is what makes GDPs, GDPs, economies grow. So there's some World Bank figures kicking around that show that UK investment has been declining since the late 1980s, right? So in 1989, investment was about a quarter of GDP. At the beginning of austerity, so 2010, it fell to its lowest ever, 16% of GDP. At the moment, it's just, just higher, 17% of GDP. If you compare that again with the US, it's about 21%. Eurozone, it's about 22%. So, you know, our level of investment is significantly lower 
in this country than it is in in other kind of Western economies. And interesting that you bring up the the NHS, Anoush, because investment isn't about necessarily, well, it is about building bridges and launching tech startups and things like that, but it's also about investing in human beings. And our workforce in the last few years, particularly since the pandemic, has shrunk like catastrophically. 400,000 people have dropped out of the workforce because of long-term sickness. And, and coincidentally, the NHS is in crisis. And you can really see, you know, you've got this crisis-addled NHS. It's not able to treat people for their long-term sickness and the economy is losing out. So there was a study that came out recently that found that for every pound spent on health, you get four pounds of economic growth. So you can really just see the effects of austerity now and they're all just kind of coming to a head. And the idea that we're about to go into another period of austerity, to me, suggests a real misunderstanding of economics on Rishi Sunak's part. Yeah, we actually looked into this, one of our data journalists, Giacomo, and I into those economic inactivity figures. And I spoke to someone who's a 31-year-old guy, healthy, worked in housing, and he, I think he trapped a nerve or something in his shoulder and it was really painful and he couldn't work. He couldn't go into work. But because the NHS couldn't treat him, a very simple thing on time, he developed depression because he was at home and couldn't exercise or socialise or, or work. And that kept him out of the workforce. He dropped out of the workforce. So you can see that's a small example of the way that this is, like you say, that growth is very much related to the strength of our public services. And and Rachel, I mean, does this put Labour in a bit of a tricky position? Because, I mean, I've heard that there's a little bit of disagreement at the top of how much they should go on the opposing austerity 2.0 thing, because after all, they have been talking about the magic money tree and how irresponsible it was for the government to to borrow for those tax cuts in that brief administration. Where do they go on this? I think they're probably, their strategy will be to say as, as little as possible. I think <laughs> that's, that's the spirit. That's, that's been their strategy for, <laughs> for the last couple of years. And I think they'll take that to absolute fever pitch when it comes to when it comes to the autumn statement that's coming up. I just think that they will try to make sure that everything that's happening is landed squarely with the, the governing party and not with them. So... They will not volunteer their position. It's only if they'll ever be forced into votes on it or what have you that they'll go any further. But um, they have said a few things that they want, which would you know wouldn't would include some of the things that have already been briefed out by the government. You know, bringing welfare into line with inflation. But I don't think you will have you know a very big deal here at the dividing lines between Labour and the Conservative Party at, at the, the autumn statement. I don't get the sense that that's the direction they're headed in. Right. OK, interesting, because that's sort of the dilemma that Miliband had, didn't he, about accepting sort of the government's public finances, basically. Yeah, as soon as you accept that framework, yeah. you have to work within it. I mean, both the Conservatives and Labour have their own fiscal rules, which are the main constraints on what they can do. And Labour have already said set those fiscal rules and they said they're going to stick by them. The problem for them is they don't know where the economy is going to be in in two years' time or whenever they potentially come into government. So it's very hard for them to say to the public, this is what the government's doing, but this is what we would do instead, because they can't write their manifesto now. So they have to criticise the government in their own terms, which sort of, as you said, means accepting their framework, which sort of restricts the economic debate within 
some, you know, Sunak's fiscal conservatism. Mm. And as Emma said, the mistake here would be to respond to this recession in the same way that we responded to the last recession, which actually led to very sluggish growth, wage stagnation. Yeah, quite. I mean, one of the best arguments to get against austerity, which is coming to the fore again now, is just that it was a false economy, you know, in lots of different ways. You mentioned NHS spending there, but also for other departments, if you cut spending in prisons, for instance, what you see five years later is just a massive injection of emergency funding because the services are going to crisis. So it doesn't always work out that you just cut departmental spending and then that helps you in the long term. Yeah. Okay. And we'll talk more about what the autumn statement might contain next week because that, you know, we will see the extent of the cuts next week. But thanks so much, all of you, for coming on. That was a great discussion. Thanks, Nish. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, my colleagues, Freddie Haywood, Rachel Wearmouth and Emma Hazlitt. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.